clean air, pure water, and fertile soil are essential to human life. And yet, environmental degradation is a bitter reality that we face today. Only a willful blindness, worse than any proverbial ostrich's head in the sand, can ignore the facts. The list is depressingly long. I'll just name two current realities that are directly related to the issue of land, which is our focus tonight. Number one, between 1950 and 1987, according to United States government statistics, the total output of crops and livestock in the United States rose by an astonishing 80%, while labor input declined by 71%, and chemical input, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, increased by 484%. Juxtapose this with the fact that during the same period, again according to U.S. government statistics, net farm income dropped by 32%. Soil, that's my, my first kind of list of our environmental reality that's sad. Second one has to do with soil. Soil erosion rates are now higher than the 1930s Dust Bowl. I was shocked to discover this reading Wendell Berry's influential book on what are humans for. Topsoil losses in Iowa now exceed the amount of grain harvested there fivefold. In the state of Washington, 20-fold. Where Iowa once had an average of 16 inches of prime topsoil, it now has eight. Every hour, about eight acres of prime topsoil floats past Memphis, Tennessee, as the Mississippi River permanently carries away millions of tons of soil. Now, again, there are many other environmental realities that demand our attention. From the huge reduction of essential biodiversity on a planet that depends on it, to the pollution of the air and the sea and the rivers, lakes and great aquifers, to the increase of greenhouse gases and consequent global warming. The list just goes on and on. Now, I'm a Christian. So I attempt to look at the world through the lens of Christianity. And when it comes to the land, there are two fundamental Christian claims that orient thinking for the Christian about the land. First of all, Christianity claims that there is a single God and the God is the creator God who owns all things, including the land. We see this claim made in the very first chapter of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures of Christianity, beginning with the first sentence in which the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the language of the day, in the literature of the day in which this was written, that's a poetic technique called a Erasmus, where you pick two terms of extreme, mountains and valleys, like me saying to my wife, I love you day and night means I love you all the time. So when the Bible begins, within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it is an ideological claim. It's a claim that in contrast to the other gods, this God made all things. Now this comes up throughout the scriptures of Christianity. For example, there's a psalm that says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now again, this is a totalizing claim. The basic premise 
is that the earth belongs to God because God made the earth. Now, at the very least, if the earth is God's, then it is not ours. This is a Christian claim that humans do not own the land. Even if our behavior tends to boast that we think we do, the Christian claim is that God is the landlord and we are the tenants. We do not have the title deed. So, as in all landlord-tenant relationships, God holds us accountable to himself for how we treat his property. Now, as a Christian, that's a basic point of orientation that I have toward land ethic issues. The second fundamental orienting point is that according to Christianity, the land is a good thing. Six times in the first chapter of Scripture, of the Christian Scriptures, before humans ever darkened the door of the cosmos, six times, the Creator God looks at His creation and announces, it is good. If you're familiar with this part of the Christian Scriptures, it keeps coming up, this statement. God looks at what He's made and says, Behold, it is good. It's like the chef. After each course that He brings out, He stops and can't help but comment on how good it is. And then there's ultimately a seventh time after He creates humans, and it's kind of like the pièce de résistance, you know, where the chef kisses his fingers and just delights in what he's done. I think what's going on here when Scripture says six times it's good from the lips of God before humans show up is that there's, a, again, this is ideology. This is a claim. This is an agenda to say that creation is intrinsically good. It is good independent of our presence within it, our ability to observe it, or what we do to it. It is the biblical story of creation. It is God who pronounces the goodness of the earth, not Adam and Eve. So its goodness precedes humans, both theologically and chronologically. The land has intrinsic value. It is not just a matter of the value we assign to it, which is a rather recent phenomenon in civilization. In fact, the Bible is very careful to avoid the assumption we find in some today that the earth exists solely for our use and enjoyment, this kind of brute utilitarian approach. Take, for example, an influential psalm in the Bible, Psalm 104. It's this amazing meditation on the value of the stork for the stork's sake. Independent. It has significance. It also celebrates the rock badger, having independent significance. And the list goes on. Goats, for example. The point being made by the author of the psalm is that God has interest in badgers and wild goats and storks for their own sake. He has interest in trees and mountains and rock cairns for who they are, independent of what they can do for humanity. Man's work is significant, but so is the lion's work or the pig's work. Ships doing commerce on the high seas in Psalm 104 has significance, but so does the sea turtle trailing behind them. When it comes to the Christian perspective, these two facts 
the earth belongs to God, the creator God, and that the land is good, these two facts form the foundation for all reflection on land ethics. And face now, as we are, with the horrific facts of the suffering of the earth itself, we must turn our face toward creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, there are three primary characters, God, humans, and the creation. Creation isn't the stage upon which human plays out, the human plays out its role, but humanity is an agent in and of itself within this trielectic. So as we turn our face toward creation, we must address the land crisis. And when we do, I believe that we will come into direct conflict with the idols of our age. We will come into direct conflict, for example, with a major contributor to environmental destruction, which is global capitalism's insatiable demand for more. The greed for minerals and oil at any cost. The greed for market domination through practices that produce the goods at at the least cost to the exploiter and the maximum cost to the land and the people being exploited. To heal the land, we must be prepared to face up to the forces of greed and economic power. We must be prepared to confront vested interest and political machinations. We must be willing to walk the long, hard road of a struggle for justice and compassion. Now, And to do this, for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, the real issue is our lifestyle. We need to recover a sense of enough. A sense of abundance can arise only if we have a sense of enough. Abundance is not connected to amount. It's connected to an attitude of enough. Developing a way of life that is content with enough and that demonstrates this contentment by a conscious acceptance of a level of consumption that doesn't have to increase every year. I must add this caveat. The appeal to alter our lifestyle is not a matter of urging us to make painful sacrifices for the sake of others. There's a place for that. But for some of us, what we need is the realization that because of our collective drive for more and more, we are directly damaging our own well-being. This is what I appreciate about Joel's work and others like Wendell Berry, is that they've shown us a vision of shalom, a vision of flourishing that is independent of this kind of drive for more. What we need is another vision of life. That's what I'm saying. A vision in which the word enough plays a positive role. Living life in this way creates new possibilities for neighborliness, for demonstrating care for our environment, and for having more time available in our harried lives. This vision of enough will help to liberate not only the poor, but also the rich. Human well-being requires, first and foremost, a lifestyle of restraint, not luxury. Now, it's my pleasure to wrap my part up and to hand this over to Joel. In his work and in the work of others, like I've mentioned Wendell Berry, I've learned that monocultural and aggressive farming practices 
the kind of practices that put my grandfather out of business as a small farmer in the 1950s. I've learned through Joel's work that sustainable, diversified forms of agriculture and culture can coexist. Forms that preserve rural ecosystem and communities that remain relatively immune to the debilitating fluctuations of price and interest rates. So with that being said, Joel, thanks so much for coming tonight. Let's give Joel a hand.